Let's take our Bibles tonight. Turn over to the book of John. John chapter 15. John chapter 15. We're going to read verse 11. And that's the only verse we're really going to read to kick things off. And we're in our Secrets of Successful Living series still. And tonight I want to talk to you a little bit and begin a a portion of that series, I guess, on this topic, The Secret of Abiding Joy. The secret of abiding joy. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I am not an expert of this. I wish I was. I wish I was the expert. But unfortunately for you, you're going to have somebody that still struggles with finding joy in every situation. I don't know if you've conquered it yet. But I know that the Bible gives us the answers that we need to arrive at that place. The question is whether or not we apply those truths and apply those, uh, the prerequisites and, and the prescription, if you will. And so, uh, you know, I guess I'm coming to you and saying, listen, with the, to the best of my ability, I'm trying to figure it out and understand it and be able to be in a place, no matter what news I get, no matter what circumstance I find myself, no matter what situation I arrive at, I can honestly say, I know the joy of the Lord. But as I said, I'm, I, I struggle a little bit with that one from time to time. And so I hope you'll bear with me along the way. And may we learn together a little bit over the course of these next few weeks as we address again the topic, the secret of abiding joy. John chapter 15, verse 11, the Bible says, These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. Well, in chapter 15, it is one of the definitive chapters in the Bible. I mean, it's an amazing chapter. It opens by describing Jesus as, as, as God. You'll notice there in, 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 in verse 1, it says in chapter 15, verse 1, I am. And of course, we know if we go back to the book of Exodus and, and we remember what uh, Moses asked the burning bush, <laughs> you know, what, who shall I say sent me? Who, who should I tell him sent me? Tell him I am sent you. So right here off the, in the very beginning of the chapter, we see here that it's describing Jesus Christ as God when he says, I am. Boy, I tell you what, that associates him with the, the Jehovah God of chapter 3, the book of Exodus. And then he goes on and points him out to be the true vine. It says there in in, in verse 1 again of the first chapter of chapter 15, I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. In verse 5, look at verse 5 of that chapter. What a powerful passage this is. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. So Jesus is the vine, and according to the passage, you and I are the branches. And the implication of such a relationship is huge. Think about that, Jesus being the vine, we being the branches. Well, we could look at the ramifications of that. We could say, first of all, it points out our subordinate position in relationship to Jesus Christ. I mean, he's the vine, not us. He's the vine, we're simply the branches it's, it's off of him we come about. It's because of him we exist. It, we don't exist. It's kind of like the, it, what came first, the horse or the cart, the chicken or the egg. 
What came first, the vine or the branches? And we'd all emphatically say, without a doubt, the vine. Jesus Christ. Again, is we are subordinate to him and his authority. That's what we find here in this passage, very simply. But not only that, the implication of such a relationship is not only that it points out our subordinate position in relationship to him, but it reveals our total and complete dependence upon him for our sustenance, our nourishment, and our growth. There's not one thing that you and I have that, or that, that, is, that is profitable for us that is not from him, the vine. When we note again, we are nourished through the vine. If you take a, a branch off of a vine and you sever the branch from the vine, then that branch ultimately dies. Guess what? If you and I are severed from Jesus Christ, if we fail to receive the sustenance and the nourishment that he alone can provide us, then we'll no longer grow. As a matter of fact, we'll die. Not only that, but this relationship is so huge in that it emphatically and unequivocally states that we are hopeless and helpless without him. I mean, right off the be- in the beginning of the verse, he says, I am the vine, ye are the branches. And we note that, and as a result, we see these first two points. But there at the end of the passage, it says, and without me, for without me, ye can do nothing. Ye can do nothing. Wow, I mean to tell you, emphatically, unequivocally, it states then that we are hopeless and helpless without him. Not that we haven't worked hard to try to do it without him at times. Not that we haven't attempted and continued to try to do things in our own flesh. But those things never amount to anything. You and I can do nothing without him. The truth is, even in your flesh, if it wasn't for the grace of God, you wouldn't have the very breath you have to do anything you do. It's amazing how often we somehow are convinced or, or should I say, I was going to say connived, meaning deceived, into believing somehow that we, have, we are self-made men and women. We have pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps. We have accomplished something on our behalf. Look at the house I live in. See what I've done? Look at the car I'm driving. Look at the girl I landed. I'm going to tell you something. I understand that it takes work. And may I say that if you're not going to work, you know, the Bible even says you shouldn't even eat and all that. But the truth is, is that when it's all said and done, if it weren't for the Lord Jesus Christ, you wouldn't have any of it. You wouldn't even have the very breath to live. And the fact is, is as believers, we have to be very careful that we don't take upon ourselves the rights of of God, that we don't somehow claim the authority and somehow claim the glory that is only God's to claim. And in this passage, he says, I am the vine, ye are the branches. Remember, we were grafted in according to Romans chapter 11. Or grafted in. In a sense, we didn't even belong there. He put us in later. We're afterthought. Now, I know someone's going to go, well, uh, you know, the Bible says, yeah, but when you're grafted in, you weren't there originally. I know that much. He put me in afterwards. He put me in because somebody rejected him. And I'm just going to thank the Lord that he put me in. And the truth is that I am nothing. I have nothing. I'm hopeless and helpless without him. And so are you. Boy, when we get a hold of that truth right there. We could park right there for a lifetime. 
And, you know, it's on the heels of this revelation that we read our text. These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. I mean, he's the vine. We're the branches. He is providing for us. He's giving us the sustenance, the nourishment, and the growth that we need. He's the one that's providing all of this for us, no matter where, no matter when, no matter what. And then he says, These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you. That your joy might be full. See, these words were spoken by our Lord, and it's very important for us to notice when he uttered those words. I mean, without a doubt, these words added to the encouragement that the disciples had received to this point. However, it would seem rather strange, a strange time for him to talk about joy and gladness, though. And you say, well, why? Well, because in just a little while, he'd find himself in dark Gethsemane. It wouldn't be long after that or shortly thereafter that he'd be facing false accusers. It wouldn't be long after that that he would hear the mob cry and shout, crucify him. And only hours from then would he be hanging on a cross, suffering for the sin of the world. These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. So it was just before facing the agonies of Calvary that he spoke of my joy, he says. Isn't that something? Facing the cross of Calvary and yet he still speaks of my joy. And someone, you know, let's face it, we're human and, and we have a tendency to look at Jesus Christ or to consider him and, and say things like, well, yeah, he was going to face the cross. But the fact was, is that he was God. And because he was God, he was going to face the cross with a lot more hope than we'll face troubles. He knew the future. He knew he would rise again because he's God and he knew that. Don't we know the future? I mean, aren't we convinced we'll rise again? I wonder. Sometimes we don't live like it, do we? We certainly don't act like it. We don't think like that's the case at times. Boy, how unique and unusual must the Lord's joy have been if it... If it remained with him while facing such great trials and tribulations. And I don't know about you, but that's the joy I want, don't you? Man, I want that kind of joy that's there even in the midst of potential death. I want the kind of joy that says it's going to carry me through any trial, any circumstance, any situation. You know that his desire and his provision for us as believers is that his joy, his joy which is so unique and so different from the world's, should be our joy. That's what his desire is, and that's what his provision for us really is. That my joy, he says, might remain in you, 
and that your joy might be full. Charles Spurgeon was speaking on joy and he, he made these remarks. <clears throat> he said, there is a marvelous medicinal power in joy. Most medicines are distasteful. By the way, I would like to add that most healthy foods are. <clears throat> Maybe not, but that's only been my experience. But nonetheless, young people, that's not true at all. You have to have the right person making them. My wife makes some wonderful healthy dishes. Simply delicious. But anyway, most medicines... <laughs> I'm trying backpedaling. I'm trying to help. My, I just realized what I said. But anyway, most medicines are distasteful. He goes on to say, but this, which is the best of all medicines, is sweet to the taste and comforting to the heart. This blessed joy is very contagious. One Dolores, let me explain what that word means real quickly, because I know if you were like me, you had to look it up. Sorrowful or dismal. One Dolores, sorrowful or dismal spirit, brings a kind of plague into the house. One person who is wretched seems to stop all the birds from singing wherever he goes. But the grace of joy is contagious. Holy joy will oil the wheels of your life's machinery. Holy joy will strengthen you for your daily labor. Holy joy will beautify you and give you an influence over the lives of others. Isn't that amazing? Well, I'll tell you what, Charles Spurgeon hit the nail on the head, didn't he? You know what he's really saying? He's saying this, if you don't have joy, don't think you're going to influence anybody positively. You don't have joy, you're going to wreck and ruin everyone around you. That's what he just said. Hey, Charles Spurgeon was a pretty wise young man. You know that at the age of 25, he built the, 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 I almost said the Mormon tabernacle, the Metropolitan Tabernacle. At the age of 25, seated 5,000 people. And it was too small already. You realize at one point they were issuing tickets to get in to hear him preach. His own church building. People would come from different places around the world to hear Charles Spurgeon preach, and they couldn't even get in to hear him. I think Charles Spurgeon had a little something that we can glean and learn from. He says, but the grace of joy. He says, I like that again. He says, one dolorous or sorrowful, dismal spirit brings a kind of plague into the house. One person who is wretched seems to stop all the birds from singing wherever he goes. But the grace of joy is contagious. Holy joy with oil, with, holy joy will oil the wheels of your life's machinery. Holy joy will strengthen you for your daily labor. Holy joy will beautify you. And give you an influence over the lives of others. You want to look beautiful? Put joy on your face. Let it begin in your heart, though. Put it in your heart and it will begin to show on your face. Your attitude and your actions. You know there's hope for any believer. And I'm talking about getting married. As long as you've got joy in your life. Someone says, man, I am so pitifully ugly, nobody would ever marry me. 
Let me tell you something. I don't care how you see yourself. You put joy in your heart, you'll be beautiful. And I know, I know this world doesn't want to. I'm telling you, there's something. You look in the face of somebody that's got the joy of the Lord in their heart, they're beautiful. And I'm not saying that in a weird way. I'm telling you, there's something uniquely beautiful about a believer whose heart is knit with God's and has the joy of the Lord in their life. There's no excuse for this ugliness we see in the world today amongst believers. There's no, no reason for it. It serves no purpose. I like the word Dolores. I think I'm saying it right, Dolores. It sounds like a name. But anyway, there's no reason for it, is there? Charles Spurgeon nailed it. I, I thought that was good. So let's consider the secret of abiding joy. Let's give some thought to this. Let's ask ourselves, what is the secret of abiding joy then? Well, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we come to you. Bless us these next few moments. We'll thank you for it. Give us leadership. We thank you for the privilege that we have to have the joy. Now, Lord, help us to receive it, to experience it. Allow you to be real in our life to the point where we will have that joy. We love you and thank you in Christ's name. Amen. First of all, again, too often we're sad and down, aren't we? I mean, this poor, pitiful me attitude and this dark cloud that seems to overshadow us can truly wreck and ruin our testimony even for the Lord. So as a Christian, we ought to be joyful in everything. At least that's what the Bible tells us. At least that's what the Word of God says. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, the Bible says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Now, I know someone says, well, that's not even joy. That's rejoicing. Yeah, but the root word's joy there. So we'll go ahead and fly with that. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, rejoice evermore. The idea is, is that we all ought to be jubilant. There ought to be a joyfulness in our, 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 our attitude, a joyfulness in our step. Uh, there ought to be a joyfulness on our face. And it ought to be consistent. It ought to be continual. From A to Z, our Christian experience should be marked by joy then. From the very beginning of it to the very end of it. From the time we receive and accept Christ to the time that we meet him in the air or we meet him through death. We note joy through at conversion. Look at Luke chapter 19, verse 6. Luke chapter 19, verse 6. Who are we talking about in Luke chapter 19? Anybody got an idea who the character is here? It's one of my favorite characters. Anybody? Who is it? Anybody? Zacchaeus, right? Yeah, Zacchaeus. Remember the little guy? He's, high, he's up in a tree trying to see the Lord. And the Lord says, guess what, Zacchaeus? You're going to come down there and you're going to take me back to your house. We're going to eat. And you're paying. You're buying. So don't ever get on the preacher if he says you're buying. No, okay. You say, well, if the Lord told me that, I'd obey him. But you, preacher, it's, forget it. I get it. I got you. Okay, good for you. You're smart. Okay. Notice this, Luke chapter 19, 6. And when Jesus said that to him, he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. I mean, the implication is that he received the Lord Jesus Christ into his life and into his home joyfully. He did that with joy. Now, I don't know about you, but do you remember when you received Christ? 
I'm not talking about how you feel today and I'm not talking about where you are in your life today. I'm saying, do you remember when you first received and accepted Christ? Do you remember the burden that was lifted off your shoulders? Do you remember the, 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 the weight that was lifted? Do you remember how it was to have Christ in your life and to know without a doubt you were on your way to heaven? Wow, what joy. What rejoicing. In those days, and you're here, so I'm... But in those days, you could have church every night and you'd have been there. I mean, if we could, we would have said, man, who cares? Clear the schedule. Let's be in God's house. Man, you got so fired up and you're feeling such rejoicing. Boy, joy at conversion. In Acts chapter 8, verse 39, we know who we're dealing with there. Remember Philip, the evangelist, he's out there running around and uh, he had just held a great revival. And now here he is with that Ethiopian eunuch, and it says, And when they were come out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip, that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. Man, the eunuch was so fired up, he was on on his journey, and, and he didn't know what he was reading. What in the world's going on in this book I'm reading? And old Philip comes running along. Know what you read? He's like, uh-uh. If you can you stop a second? I'll jump on. I'll I'll tell you. He got on there and he preached unto him Jesus. Man, he took him through those old testaments and he showed him Christ there. Man, that Ethiopian said, Man, that's what I need. I need Jesus. <laughs> he trusted Christ. What doth hinder me to be baptized? says, you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? You believe? I believe. Well, then let's stop this thing. Where's some water at? In the middle of the desert. Where's some water at? Oh, there it is. Jumps out. I think it's kind of interesting. There's water right there in a desert. But anyway, he gets out. Boom. Gets baptized. And when he looks up, Philip's gone. Where'd he go? I don't know where he went, but all I know is I feel good. I feel great. Man, he had Jesus in his life. You know what? When you got saved, it began with tremendous joy, didn't it? I mean, that's how it begins, from A to Z. Not only that, but joy when we read God's Word. There's joy in the Word of God. Jeremiah 15, 16 says, Thy words were found, and I did eat them, and Thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of mine heart. For I am called by thy name, O Lord God of hosts. Man, Jeremiah says, listen, I'm going to tell you something. There's something that gives me great joy and rejoicing in my heart. It's the word of God. I hope the word of God gives you great joy and rejoicing. You know, the reality is that there's probably folks in here that are struggling reading your Bible. Man, matter of fact, you read it and you probably don't even feel a whole lot of joy. Matter of fact, it's all duty for you. I had to read my Bible. Got to read it every day. Preacher says, you don't read your Bible. Read your Bible. Pray every day. Pray every day. Pray every day. Read your Bible. Pray every day. And you grow, grow, grow. Sick of growing if that's what it is. Tired of this, reading my Bible. It seems like it takes up time. I can never get around to what I, I get. I wake up and I'm busy and I'm flying all over the place. My mind's going a million miles an hour. I never seem to have time for the Word of God. And when I do get in the Word of God, it doesn't speak to me anymore. 
Well, I'll tell you what, according to the Word of God, it ought to be a joy to read the Word, to be in the Word. Let me ask you something. If, if something's a joy to you, is it a chore or a labor to do? It's not, is it? How's come reading the Word of God and studying the Word and being in it such a chore for us? In, in the year 2019, why is it that Christians have such a difficult... Why is it that they keep coming out with Bible after Bible after Bible after Bible, study after study after study after study, gimmick after gimmick after gimmick after gimmick to get people to read their Bibles today? I'm not even talking about just fundamental Baptists. I'm talking about churches across the country. We're always trying to convince somebody to read a Bible. We're always trying to kick them in the, the behind and get them moving. We're always trying to motivate them to read Bibles, read your Word, read the Word, read the Word, study the Word, study the Word, memorize the Word, memorize the Word. Why do we have to work so hard at that if it's so joyful? Maybe it's not as joyful as it ought to be in our lives. Because if it, I don't know about you, but I, I, I love to go home. I, it didn't matter at what stage of the ministry, what stage of my, 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 my life, I have always, always, always loved to go home. You want to know why? Because there was joy waiting for me. Now, our name's Sherry, but it was joy. <laughs> and I had four kids that I loved and enjoyed being around. I looked forward to going home because it was a joy. Nobody had to convince me to go home. Nobody had to coax me into going home. I've known men, though. And unfortunately, some women who begrudgingly go home. It's not because it's so joyful. I guess I'm just asking or I'm kind of making a point. I'm wondering if, if reading the Word of God is to be so joyful, how's coming we're struggling so much? It's just food for thought. Not only that, but joy in prayer. Joy in prayer. Turn, if you would, to John 16, 24. John 16, 24. Here in John chapter 16, verse 24, it says, Hitherto have ye asked nothing in my name. Ask... And ye shall receive, that your joy may be full. Have you asked the Lord for anything lately? Does he, does he ever answer your prayers? You know, I, I'm, I'm concerned today that, that, that fewer and fewer Christians could give testimony of answered prayer. I'm convinced of that. I, I hope I'm wrong. But, but I don't know about you. Have you, you knock on people's door who claim to be Christians that don't even go to church? If they don't even take the time to make an effort to be in God's house, do you think they're spending a lot of time in the Word and on their knees praying? Probably not. Therefore, there's probably very few answered prayers. If I would have a poll across the congregation, you might be surprised if I said, what is the biggest thing you struggle with in your Christian life right now? Now, again, if somebody's mixed up in vice or something, that's one thing. But usually in a crowd like this, it's not major sin. You know what I mean? 
Usually it's not that. What most people will go to is this. I'm just having a hard time being consistent with my Bible reading and prayer. Now that's usually what you get. I'm not, listen, I'm talking about not just people in the pew. I'm talking about people that are teaching Sunday school and folks are singing in the choir and on buses and soul winning. I'm telling you that, that those are the responses I get most often when I ask those questions. Sometimes when I counsel with people and there's a situation in their life, I'll ask them, how's your prayer life? And they'll say, eh, it's all right. And I'll say, define all right. What does that mean? I mean, are you praying every day? And if so, where and when? How long? What are you praying about? You'd be surprised how that prayer goes from all right to, well, I'm really struggling. You know what I find too about prayer? When people get in a tough time, you would think it would cause them to pray more. But unfortunately, in some cases, if they don't feel their prayers are being answered immediately the way they want them to be answered, there's something that happens they get to the point where they're like, doesn't do no good. I prayed and nothing ever happens. And they get discouraged in their prayer life. Instead of it forcing them to their knees and wanting to pray more and begging God even more than ever, they have a tendency to almost step away from prayer. Like it's just a bunch of work. It's just duty. I'm not happy with it. I'm not content with it. It's just not working the way I want it to. Prayer. Prayer ought to be joyful. Now, I do get that study is weariness to the flesh. I understand that prayer is is a spiritual warfare. and Without a doubt, it's not always easy, but it's supposed to be joyful. Have you ever, and and I'm sure that many of you have, if not all, I hope, have you you ever been in a situation where the pressure was building and the the, the burden was mounting and you you knew that you were ready to wilt under the pressure of it? And you go to the, the throne of grace and you, you start to pray and you just envision God high and lifted up like Isaiah said and you see him on the throne and man, you just feel, you, you feel like you're crawling up in his lap. He's putting his arms around you. Isn't that wonderful when all the fear and all the heartache and all the burden just melts away. Boy, that's joy. That's the joy of the Lord, man. That's what prayer can do in our lives. Unfortunately, we rarely get there. We live in such a fast-paced, crazy society. We can't even relax long enough to, to focus on the Lord, let alone spend enough time to get in His presence. But it ought to be joyful. I mean, joy at our conversion, joy when reading God's word, joy in prayer. I mean, from A to Z, the Christian experience should be marked by joy, every aspect of it. Joy in the midst of trials even. James 1, 2 says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations. 
Well, let's just be frank and let's be honest. If we've lost the joy of our salvation, if for some reason reading the Word of God has become a chore, if prayer is a burden at times or we never find time to do it, let's be honest, in the midst of a trial, we're certainly not going to experience joy. Not only in the midst of trials, but the truth is the Bible tells us that it ought to be, there ought to be joy when we're suffering. I mean, actually suffering. In Acts chapter 5, turn there, would you please? Acts chapter 5, verse 41. What, what is the standard that we have for the Christian life today? I mean, what, 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 what do we believe God desires of us and has designed us for? I mean, it, it's kind of like, you know, we, we were, a couple of us were driving together the other day and we we're talking about, about expectations for our children and things, you know? And how important it is to have high expectations, to, to desire much of our children, to, to not just simply settle for what the world says is, is acceptable. Well, this is just the way it is. No, it's not the way it is. We, we have a different standard. As believers, our children ought to live in a different plane. They ought to function in a different level. They're human, I understand that. But if they claim Christianity, then they're as much a Christian as I am. And as a parent, I ought to, I'd expect them to, to like me. If I, I want my husband to, to grow, my wife, she wants me to grow, I want her to grow, and I ought to want them to grow. And we're working together as a family to grow in Christ and to place him at the head of our home and to allow him to have leadership in that home. Behavior, attitude, actions. The expectation ought to be different than what a lost person's expectation is for their kid. There ought to be a different expectation. What's your expectation for the Christian life? What does God outlined in the Word of God for you? Where should you be? Where should I be? How wonderful should the Christian life be? And yet, how, uh, where are we at on that plane? Where are we at on that scale? Are we really gleaning and getting everything that God has for us out of the Christian life? Or are we settling and saying, well, we're doing as good or better than the rest of the Christians I know? You get where I'm going with this? What do you want out of your Christian life? Why do you even come to church? Why do you serve the Lord? Why do you read your Bible and pray? For what reason do you do that? Is it so you can be blessed? Is it so your kids ultimately grow up and serve the Lord? Is it so you can see benefit in your own home, your life, your family, your marriage? Is it all about you still? Is that the only reason you do what you do? Because you're going to get something in the end. At least that's what you think. That's what you feel God's promised you. We really have to evaluate our Christian lives. This thing of joy. Man, I don't know about you, but to experience the joy that God outlines in the Word of God, that should keep me moving along when, I, when all kinds of things are messed up in my life. That joy, His joy. What keeps me going? Well, the fear that God's going to come down and whoop me. I don't want to lose the joy of the Lord in my life. I want to have that intimacy, that closeness. I've got God. He loves me and I don't deserve it. What is man that thou art mindful of him? 
Joy in prayer and then joy in the midst of trials and joy when suffering, Acts 5.41, you're there. And they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. They'd been beaten now, whooped. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. These disciples, these men of God, these, these saints of the Lord, they had traveled with him three and a half years. They had lived their lives. They had sacrificed everything. They'd given it all to him. Then he leaves. The Holy Spirit descends on Pentecost. And here they are now witnessing and sharing the Lord Jesus Christ and his resurrection with the world. And all they get is a beating. I don't know I don't know how you would respond to that. I know for me it would be tough. I'd hope I would respond the way they did. I pray God would give me the grace to respond the way they did. I've not been there, so I honestly can't tell you how I would respond, but what I can say is by God's grace I would respond in like manner. I pray I would. Anybody says, well, I know exactly how I'd respond. I'm not listening to you. You get there and then tell me. What I do know is how they responded. So if they did respond that way, I could respond that way. Whether I will or not, it's up to me. I have the same Holy Spirit living in me that they did. I have the same Jesus Christ indwelling me as they did through the person of the Holy Spirit. I have the same power to overcome evil like they did. I have the same ability to, 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 to die to self and crucify the flesh as they did. But they had joy, even suffering. See, for the Christian, from A to Z, that Christian experience is marked by joy. Whether, whether it's your conversion, whether it's reading the Word of God or prayer, whether it's in the midst of trial, or even when we're suffering, it ought to be marked by joy. There ought to be something different about the believer. Unique and special about us versus the world. There ought to be joy in serving the Lord. He says in 2 Corinthians 1.24, not for that we have dominion over your faith, but are helpers of your joy. For by faith you stand. These folks were standing and living for Christ, and it was a joy. And finally, joy at the journey's end. I mean, when it comes time to cross death's chilly waters, as we would say in the song, Acts 20.24 says, but none of these things move me, Neither count I my life, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry. Anybody have an idea who might be saying this? Which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel, the grace of God. We read about him in Timothy as well, remember? He's finishing strong. But you know why he can finish strong? Because he lived a life with his joy, the Lord's joy. And now he's facing death. And he can still face it with joy. Wow, that joy, the joy of the Lord, his joy. We're going to talk a little bit more about this next week, but what a powerful passage we find in this John chapter 15. These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you, that your joy might be full.
Do you, do you want the joy of the Lord in your life? I do. And, and, and so often, I, I really, I, I believe I do have it. But there are times, i got to admit, I let things get me out of sorts. I let them get me out of sorts. I wonder, have you been out of sorts lately? Have you found yourself functioning without the joy, His joy? Are you serving without it? Are you praying without it? Are you reading without it? Or can you say, more? I'll tell you what, it gets sweeter as the days go by. His name is wonderful. His name is wonderful. I wonder. Because if there's any area of your life that you need to work on, it's, this is an important one. Because in the end, as Spurgeon said, and as the word of God implies, however high your joy meter reads will reflect directly how much influence you have in the lives of others for God. If the joy meter's on the other end, you're going to have influence. But it won't be for big G God. It'll be for little G God. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to influence anybody toward him. I want to, invent, I want to influence everybody toward Amen. him. Father, we come to